Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 79. Continuing with uh, Historic Preservation, um, this will be Part 2, Preservation Philosophies. Trying to find different places that historic preservation shows up under the different terminology and the different directions with different groups. So let's look at a historical perspective of historic preservation. So the underlying philosophy of the historic preservation movement in the United States is defined more through activities than theory. One could rationalize that preservation is as preservation does. For preservationists bring many perspectives to their field. Some see their role primarily as saving old buildings. Some as preserving a cultural heritage. Some as fostering urban revitalization. And some as contributing to sustainability and an alternative approach to current developmental practices. Preservationist brings a diversity of approaches even to a basic as activity as saving an old building. For instance, some feel that historic structures should be kept in their own state, or if they have been altered, they should be returned to their in their original condition as they were once built. Others feel they should protect what remains of a structure's significant historic character, but the change can and should be accommodated. The pendulum swings with the times and the circumstances, as well as with the flow of available funds or incentives for a project. So what is considered an appropriate response in one instance may be seen quite differently in another. The issue of old versus new was part of the debate among 19th century preservationists. The contrast in opinions was nowhere greater than in the writings of the French architect Eugene Emmanuel Violet, Le Doc, 1814-1879, and the English art historian essayist John Ruskin, 1890-1900. highly recommend people read Ruskin, add a little bit here before we go any further, um, he talks a lot about the American craftsman, the American artist, the world artist, and how he should be recognized. Leduc was one of the first master builders concerned with the restoration of landmark structures in France. Before his activities in the mid-19th century, most older buildings were either informally maintained by local craftsmen or left to follow a natural course of deterioration. Leduc changed this attitude by establishing principles for the restoration of historic structures. He not only devoted his entire career to restoration work and is concerned and considered the world's first restoration architect, but also presented his methods, technology, and philosophy in a series of books, including a 10-volume dictionary of architecture. Although historic preservation professionals now discount much of his philosophy of restoration. The historical and technical information that he cataloged has proved to be invaluable. His work has had no precedent and was highly influential in early restoration efforts in France and throughout Europe. Leduc's restoration philosophy 
was based on the principle that important monuments should be rebuilt, not necessarily as they were originally, but as they should have been initially, as he stated. To restore a building is not only to preserve it, to repair it, or to rebuild, but to bring it back to a state of completion such as may never have existed in any given moment. For example, his first major project, the Romanesque Church of La Madeleine Madeleine de Vizy in Burgundy, France, was used new stone elements sculpted in duplicate of the old, but also used new statuary based not on the original design, but on what Ledoc deemed compatible with that style and with that time period. After Ledoc's death, one critic, Paul Lyon, disagreed with his approach, saying, a monument to, to be a testimony to the past must stay as the past has bequeathed it. To pretend to restore it to its original state is dangerous and quite deceitful at best. We must preserve buildings as they are, respecting the contribution of successive generations. Leduc's restoration methods are now largely discredited because he added new elements and embellished without appropriate historical basis. But his contributions are significant nonetheless because of the recognition he gave to the need for restoration of significant historical structures. An example of restoration based on his philosophy is the, is the city of Santa Barbara, California, largely destroyed by an earthquake in 1925. The downtown had to be totally rebuilt almost entirely from scratch. City authorities saw this as an opportunity to establish rigorous new design controls. They determined that they would improve the beauty of their city by limiting new designs to a single style, the old Spanish mission pattern. They established a a board of architectural review to ensure a consistent design approach. Indeed, much of the construction in Santa Barbara since then has been done in the same style, giving an almost unparalleled uniformity to the streetscape of the entire town. The town or city's design guidelines include many illustrations of the Spanish mission style in the sections on compatibility of new design, human scale, character, street edge, and courtyards and plazas. It could be argued that the guiding philosophy adopted by Santa Barbara is that the historical image of the city should be better than before, just as Ledux had advocated a century earlier. The image in many's mind, is the elevation shows how the design elements can be applied to make new developments compatible with existing adjacent developments and the surrounding neighborhoods. While having similar architectural features, each building has a unique form and distinctive detailing that enhances the uh, streetscape. In contrast to Leduc, 19th century writer and critic John Ruskin posited that older buildings should not be restored. They should remain untouched. He argued that a society has no right to improve or even restore. The craftsmanship of another era. As he explained in his book, Seven Lamps of Architecture, it is impossible 
as impossible as to raise the dead, to restore anything that has ever been great or beautiful in architecture. Old buildings should be left to look old, he argued. They gain their beauty only after four or five centuries, and the richness of their beauty is enhanced as seen as ruins at times. As noted in the epitaph to the present book, the greatest glory of a building is not in its stones or in its gold. Its glory is in its age. Ruskin felt that buildings should be built to last. When we build, let us think we build forever. Who are we to try to restore a form of glory? Ruskin asked. In his mind, restoration was comparable to erasing the character evident in the face of an older person through plastic surgery, trying to make that person look young again. The beauty and age lines should be respected rather than artificially changed. We often want to make older buildings look too perfect, to restore them to a state in which they look more like museum pieces than buildings in daily use. Restoration can sometimes morph to artificially what Ruskin termed as indecent zeal for restoration. As he asserted, we have a tendency to clean old buildings too much, to strip them of their age and character, to make them look too new, and to turn them into spectacles rather than allow them to look old and merely befriended. Ruskin expounded on this in the chapter, The Lamp of Memory. He said, Restoration may possibly produce good imitation of an ancient work of art, but the original is often falsified, and it, in its restored state is no longer an example of the art of the period to which it belonged. In fact, the more exact the limitation, the more it is adapted to mislead posterity. No preservation should ever be attempted otherwise than in the sense of preservation from further injuries. Anything beyond this is untrue in art, unjustifiable in taste, and even destructible in practice, and wholly opposed to the judgment of the best archaeologists. Do not let us then talk of restoration. The thing is a lie from the beginning to the end. Ruskin's approach was updated in a report from the uh, Getty Conservation Institute recently, which included the following statement. It is an illustration to believe, I'm sorry, it is an illusion to believe that an object can be brought back to its original state by stripping it of all later additions. The original state is a mythical, unhistorical idea. An early report in 1971 from the Society for the Preservation of New England Antiquities, now Historic New England, rejected the idea of restoration for a number of reasons. In the first place, the philosophy of restoration is founded partly on the assumption that the most important thing about an early building is its design, and that later changes which obscure or spoil that design should be wiped away. The position of, the, of historic New England is that what matters most about an old building is not its design, but the old material in it. The fact that the building is a direct physical transference of the past into the present. 
We judge that all fabric in the building, earlier and later, is part of this material and historic reality, for which no new restoration fabric can ever be substituted. We reject the concept of old buildings, that they're all made all at once, and observe that they normally and naturally consist of a continuum. We place our own former restorations in the same unflattering lights as those 19th century restorations of certain medieval buildings back in Europe, by which half of the antiquity of the buildings was destroyed. The Duck and Ruskin represent two opposing perspectives on the restoration of historic properties. They illustrate significant divergent opinions on intervention approaches also. The philosophies of both can be viewed as extreme, but they initiate discussion on what is the proper approach to preserving older structures. An examination of projects that are more contemporary and pragmatic may help in understanding how the restoration of a ruin presents unique challenges. One example is the treatment of an existing remnant of bay furnace, a former blast furnace used for smelting iron located on the shores of Lake Superior. After seven years of producing pig iron from 1870 to 1877, a fire destroyed the entire site, including much of the tapered masonry tower of the blast furnace. After a century of neglect, the National Forest Service cleaned up the pile of overgrown masonry rubble and stabilized the tower in its extent, truncated form. Native plants were reintroduced, and wild plants were allowed to reestablish themselves on the partially reconstructed furnace. The furnace was thus preserved, not restored, as a relic of a long-lost industry. So let's get back to the core essence of what we're talking about, the philosophical approaches to preservation. So by adapting an overarching presentation philosophy lays the foundation in describing a defensible approach to treatment of a historic structure. The National Park Service lays out four types of interventions. Preservation, rehabilitation or adaptive use, restoration, and reconstruction that are detailed more for <clears throat> that will be detailed more fully in uh, probably about six to eight episodes. The following case studies from the United States to the United Kingdom, from the West to the Far East, from the ephemeral to the monumental, illustrate a range of philosophies and corresponding approaches to the treatment of historic resources at each of these sites. The list is not intended to be exhaustive. The purpose is to describe a range of challenges and policy-driven strategies, listed from the least to the most aggressive interventions, and examine various approaches to treatment at significant historic places in countries around the world. Construction of the Pantheon, situated prominently, prominently at the Acropolis in Athens, Greece, and considered to be a high point of ancient Greek art and architecture, was completed in 438 BC. To complement the classic form of the structure itself, 
The temple incorporated many decorative marble sculptures in the pediments and along the frieze. Unfortunately, during the centuries-long Ottoman conquest of Greece, the structure's integrity was disastrously compromised. The Turks used it in a, <clears throat> as an ammunition dump, and the resulting explosions severely damaged the building and its sculptures. In 1801, Thomas Bruce of England, 7th Earl of Elgin, obtained a permit from the Turks to remove the surviving sculptures and transport them to Britain. By 1816, Lord Elgin had amassed a large collection of what we refer today as the Elgin Marbles, eventually brokering a deal to sell them to the British Parliament for display in the British Museum. This is where they remain today, to the chagrin of the people of modern Greece. And this is raping of other people's patrimony, unfortunately. With its independence secured in 1832, Greece began a series of projects to restore its monuments. The Greeks had as a primary goal to return the Elgin marbles to their original home. The Greek government made arguments for the return of the Pantheon's original marbles. But the British stated that the marbles were well protected and cared for at the British Museum. Today, a plaque at the museum diplomatically reads, Elgin's removal of the sculptures from the ruins of the building has always been a matter of discussion. But one thing is certain, his actions sparred as further damage by vandalism, weathering, and pollution. It also thanks to Elgin that generations of visitors have been able to see the sculptures at eye level rather than high up on a building. In the British Museum, they are part of a world museum where they can be connected to other ancient civilizations such as those in Egypt, Assyria, and Persia. In an attempt to encourage their return to Athens in nearly 30 years of planning, in 2009, the Greek government completed construction of a new Acropolis Museum, located at the site just below the Acropolis. It includes large glass walls with dramatic views up to the ancient site. The upper floor was designed to be large enough to mount the missing sculptural panels to the original Parthenon frieze. Interdispersed with remaining fragments found on the Acropolis, so far, the marbles could be viewed, also at eye level, in their original sequence and tell their story appropriately. After more than two centuries, Greece wants the marbles return more than ever, and its arguments are well enumerated. The Parthenon was a single-purpose-built structure that represents ancient Greek culture at its highest point. The Acropolis Restoration Project has the technical expertise to conserve the marbles. Athens has made great strides in reducing destructive air pollution, and the new Acropolis Museum offers a proper interpretive venue, and most significantly, the marbles ultimately belong to the Greeks and not to the British. It remains a long-standing controversy, with two nations having differing notions of the best way to preserve these incredibly significant architectural artifacts. Members of the Native American cultures believe that the overriding historic significance of a site is a ge geographical place that it holds. Many such places are considered sacred. For nearly 5,000 years, 
people have lived in the canyons in southwestern United States. Pueblo Indians settled on lands at the Canyon de Chile, which is pronounced Chalet, then the northeastern corner of Arizona, and built cliff dwellings high in the sandstone alcoves. In the canyons are ruins of several hundred prehistoric villages dating between 350 and 1300 A.D. In about 1700 A.D., the Navajo Indians began to occupy this canyon. Designated a national monument in 1931, primarily to protect it from looters, the canyon is one of the longest continuously inhabited ancestral sites in North America. Navajo people lived in the canyon until 1863, when Colonel Kit Carson sent troops to remove them. They resisted, but their crops and homes were destroyed. Isn't that special what we do, huh? And the long walk, 8,000 Navajos were forcibly removed to a reservation in New Mexico. Four years later, after 60% of the Navajos had died, the site was returned to the tribe and it became part of the Navajo Tribal Trust. Currently, a few dozen families still live in the park. Most tourists are allowed to view the ruins only from a distance. The ancient ruins are owned by the Navajo Nation, which is responsible for protection of the natural resources, with the National Park Service responsible for these archaeological sites. It is, only nas- it is the only national monument not owned by either the Department of the Interior or the National Park Service. Conservation for Drayton Hall in Charleston, South Carolina. A historic Georgian Palladian plantation mansion located outside Charleston, South Carolina, made an important decision not to restore the historic structure. As an alternative to restoration, the National Trust for Historic Preservation, which has received the property from the Drayton family in 1974 without furnishings, chose to stabilize and preserve it in its age state as an example of an unrestored historic structure. After serious deliberation, trust officials determined that they had the, <clears throat> that had the structure been restored to a certain time period, much of the physical narrative of the Drayton family's everyday life over many generations would have been lost. Woodwork throughout the house exhibited layers of paint resulting from various redecoration efforts by the family. Many surfaces showed signs of wear, and some of the architectural detailing had disappeared over time. This allowed conservationists and architects to glean important information about its conservation and materials that had been covered by restoration of the structure. To further study this important historic property, an effort was made to visualize Drayton Hall in its restored state without actually undertaking its restoration. Photorealistic images were created using a large amount of computer-generated data, and every detail of the house was measured to one-sixteenth of an inch. The resulting digital restoration allows visitors to see an on-screen image of the building's spaces as they had been restored to their original condition. The recreating lost space, and its materials. Visitors can view these digital images while standing in the actual space, observing it as it has aged over time without restoration.
Graydon Hall's website summarized our preservation philosophy compels us to preserve the house rather than restore it so it can continue to learn from it and appreciate the history contained in all of its walls. So let's, uh, let's move to Strawberry Hill as an example in London. Horace Walpole was a clever and creative man from a prominent family. His father had been the Earl of Oxford in the county of Suffolk and Prime Minister. Walpole enjoyed a substantial private income. In 1747, he bought a small 17th century cottage on the banks of the Thames River in fashionable the south end of London. On a grand tour of the continent, Walpole had been entranced by the ancient Greek and Roman structures, but also by the elegance of the medieval Gothic buildings. He reinvented his house completely, transformed the structure into a dark and moody Gothic-style castle, and designed in the period of classical Palladian-style residences. Known as Strawberry Hill, Walpole's house included chimneys, doors, and ceilings designed with Gothic vaulting and cathedral-type rose windows. Over the years, Walpole added more features. The house grew pinnacles, finials, Tudor chimneys, and battlements. It was the first house to be Gothic both inside and outside, and launched the popularity of a new architectural style, Gothic Revival that led to structures such as London's House of Parliament. Walpole was part of the English aristocracy and delighted in entertaining dignitaries, both foreign and domestic. In Strawberry Hill's magnificent rooms, the house passed through the family to the Countess of Walgrave, who expanded the castle beginning in 1856 in the grand drawing room, dining room, and the billiard room, while adding height, to the prominent tower. With its embellishments, it became known popularly as the Wedding Cake House. By the year 2000, the structure had fallen into extreme disrepair, was in danger of being lost. Because of its significance as architectural exotica and as a historic precedent, it was decided a full restoration was needed, which was initiated in 2004. Largely, with funding from Britain's Heritage Lottery Fund, the Conservatives decided the restoration should be formulated to take back the houses back to the 1790s, the time of Walpole's death, so later changes could be better appreciated and understood. The restoration was extensive. In Walpole's beauty room, various layers of paneling were visible, windows, shutters, and painted glass restored, and wall surfaces exposed colorful wallpaper from the 19th century, including a special textured ceiling paper from the 1870s. To show the intricate wiring of a bell system installed by Lading Waldgrave, a glass panel was installed over the floor. One of the special challenges of the restoration was to recreate a white wedding cake exterior with a render replicating its 18th century appearance. So let's use another example of preservation, Williamsburg, Virginia. Williamsburg, Virginia was first settled in 1633 and became the colonial capital of Virginia in 1669. Even at that early date, it was a carefully planned town with well-delineated provisions 
in the act directing of the building of the Capitol and the city of Williamsburg. The carefully considered plan for the city included many features, laying out lot sizes, which were all half acres, setbacks, which were six feet, roof slopes, less than 10 foot pitch, and the location of large central squares in Capitol buildings, the Bruton Parish Church, and the College of William and Mary. During the War of Independence, Williamsburg proved to be a strategically vulnerable location. And in 1778, Virginia's governor, Thomas Jefferson, wanted to move the capital to a safer, more central location. The next year, the state capital was moved to Richmond, and Williamsburg began a long, a long period of stagnation. More than a century later, Williamsburg became an excellent exa- early example of a restoration effort. With many forms of interventions utilized, the effort revolved around two men, the Reverend W.A.R. Goodwin and John D. Rockefeller, Jr. In 1903, Goodwin became minister of the Buton Parish Church, located in the center of Williamsburg. Because of its deteriorated condition, he began fundraising for the restoration of the church. This initial effort was successful, but then left Williamsburg, During his 15 years away, he dreamed of returning with the goal of expanding the initial restoration effort to the entire town. To do so, he needed an abstract supporter with deep pockets. Goodwin appealed to two major philanthropists on the grounds that Williamsburg is the one remaining colonial village any man could buy. He first turned to Henry Ford, but Ford at the time was focused on developing Greenfield Village, a site near Dearborn, Michigan, where he was developing a historic village consisting of historic structures he had transferred from locations around the country. However, Goodwin remained dedicated to the idea of Williamsburg total restoration as an 18th century town. The difficulty he faced in initiating restoration of the town is represented in a conversation he had with noted Chicago architect Thomas Talmadge. Goodwin's high-spirited, optimistic intensity came through in this dialogue. My dream and hope is to make this town exactly what it was in the 18th century. But doctor, how about all these wartime and modern buildings of various kinds? We'll have to tear them down and move them off. How many are there? Over 300 anyway. How many old buildings would be left when you get through destroying the new ones? About 55, but of course we would have to rebuild all of those, who have dis- the ones that also have disappeared throughout the years. How about the new concrete pavement in the Duke of Gloucester Street and the cement sidewalks everywhere? Up they come, they gotta go. And the telephone and telegraph poles and electric lighting standards. Down they go, said the doctor. In my astonishment, I now played my trump card. Well, the new high school will spoil everything, for you certainly can't tear that down. Oh, he said, that is where we'll rebuild the governor's palace. I laid my hand on his arm, said, Doctor, don't worry. Get plenty of sleep and exercise, and I'll be sure I'll be there right in time to help you. Two years later, Goodwin and others in the town invited John D. Rockefeller to Williamsburg to show him the town. This is after Rockefeller spent a year and a half studying um, the Salem City, New Jersey. 
a town lost in time, deteriorating in its own right for almost 150 years to this point. But the Rockefeller, when approaching Salem, wanted to create what would have become Williamsburg, uh, or a town like Williamsburg in Salem City. And uh, he was refuted by the Department of Transportation in New Jersey, uh, conveying that Route 40 and uh, Route 45, rather, intersecting with Route 47 through the town would cause uh, a potential danger for museum goers. So the whole town would have been a potential museum of people walking around the town and they could be uh, potentially injured or killed because they couldn't shut down, I'm sorry, it was Route 45 intersecting Route 49. They couldn't shut down those roads at the DOT. But I think if they known in hindsight what Williamsburg became, they would have done that to bring this to South Jersey, which is severely uh, falls in a state of deterioration, Salem and Cumberland counties. So Rockefeller went on to his invite by Goodwin to Williamsburg, and the rest is history, modern history, as we say. So Rockefeller noted that the restoration efforts taking place in the community were quite limited. After asking to be left alone for a while with his thoughts, Rockefeller returned to the group and indicated he would be willing to fund the restoration effort, but on one condition, that he could he could fund the restoration for the entire town as a whole. With Rockefeller's financial support, work began in earnest in 1926. Rockefeller insisted the work be done with historical accuracy in an advisory committee of architects was established. They developed 10 principles of restoration referred to as the Decalogue. Well, let's summarize it. The guiding principle stated that all buildings reflecting the colonial tradition would be retained regardless of the date. and structures in which the classical condition persisted would be removed only with discretion. All work not reflecting these influences would be eliminated. Buildings would be left on original sites wherever possible. No surviving old work was to be rebuilt if reasonable consolidation would suffice. All buildings were to be preserved rather than restored, where practicable. Superior results were preferred to rapid progress, No use was to be made of scavenged old materials where the possibility existed for their continuation on the original site. The new materials would be approximate the old with no attempts at artificial aging. All the decisions on restoration were carefully deliberated, and nothing was done without any good reason. So over the span of two decades, Rockefeller donated $70 million to the restoration effort. Preservationists today may see many of the early efforts at Williamsburg as overly aggressive attempts to create a museum-quality setting, but they were nevertheless important lessons that guided the development of restoration standards and guidelines on a much broader basis. Later work has been done with greater sensitivity to the historic significance of these original structures. For example, Williamsburg curators have understood that sometimes a secondary building that is original is more historically accurate and correct than an important structure that has been reconstructed. Because the reconstruction cannot fully replace the original, no matter how well the work is done. They have also recognized that structures age over time, so the stuff no longer keeps every building in perfect condition.
They let time enhance the building's character. On some structures, the paint has been allowed to weather, and lawns have been carefully manicured, are now home to grazing sheep, as would have been common in the 17th century. Such approaches allows a patina to develop and convey the, end, the age of the various town sites. The understanding that meticulous historical research was necessary remains to this day one of the hallmarks of this massive restoration project. Williamsburg remains one of the best examples of historic preservation in America, and it has become a model of historic and architectural authenticity. So let's shift gears to another preservation product, the TWA Terminal in New York City. The TWA Terminal at JFK Airport in New York City was completed in 1962. It was designated a New York City Historic Landmark in 1994 and listed in the National Register of Historic Places in 2005. It is a mid-century modern masterpiece of sculptural architecture designed by Erico Safarin, and it represents the concept of flight in a way unique in architectural history. In other words, it is a great architecture, and it has been recognized for its historical as well as architectural significance almost from its inception. As a modernist architect, Safarin was committed to a new building technologies and materials and he designed structures in original and creative ways. He used imagery and large models to portray architectural expressions and focused on the sensual experiences of a building's users. Each of the, pro- <coughs> each of the projects, in its own special character, was then def- defined by program requirements, but also with the spirit of the place, as he once wrote. Architecture must make a strong emotional impact on man. I have come to the conviction that once one embarks on a concept for a building, this concept has to be exaggerated and overstated and repeated in every part of its interior so that wherever you are, inside or out, the building sings with the same message. The TWA Terminal's technology was state-of-the-art for the time. It features a prominent wing-shaped thin-shell concrete roof and included one of the first enclosed passenger jetways, enclosed circuit television and public address systems, baggage carousels, and electronic schedule board and baggage scales. As Safarin described the space, we wanted passengers passing through the building to experience a fully designed environment in which each part arises from another and everything belongs to the same formal world. As Professor of Art Alex Friedman described the experience within the space, bold and dramatic, the TWA terminal offers travelers a vivid experience, one in which ordinary people are given the opportunity not simply to arrive and depart in style, but also to process and promenade, to sit, stand, dine, and observe one another in spaces of a ceremonial quality previously reserved for only a privileged few. The problem was that the airport services <clears throat> quickly changed. The iconic structure became obsolete as a modern terminal, and its location on a prime site at one of the world's busiest airports brought pressure for its demolition and replacement with a more functional terminal that could serve more current needs in air travel. 
An early proposal in, in 2001 recommended encircling the entire building with new terminals, basically eliminating its structure as a freestanding architectural statement. This idea was opposed by many prominent architects who said the building would be strangled, a fate worse than demolition. Its demise was avoided, at least temporarily. In 2014, the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey recognized the iconic structure as a part and announced that it would be soliciting bids toward restoration of the terminal. The authority dedicated $20 million to expenses incurred by any initial (coughs) renovations. In 2017, construction began on the structure's transformation into a hotel, restaurant, retail, and even an event space. The project required coordination among 22 government agencies, 124 consulting firms, four architectural and design firms, and nine law firms. It is representative of the complexity of restoration and renovation work in the current era. In spite of the complications, the final design properly gives prominence to the original terminal, recognizing it as a centerpiece of the project and places two new hotel buildings in the position behind the terminal, keeping a relatively low building height so as not to distract from the terminal's sculptural form. So this is going to finish this up for Section 2. That's Greg Perry, the historic preservationist, and uh, Section 2 of our preservation philosophies, the role of preservation. Thanks for listening.